It was just a number of weeks ago that Janet and I had a privilege spawning from a gift from our congregation, you here, of celebrating our 20 years of ministry here at Fellowship Bible Church, that we had the opportunity uh, to be in Pearl Harbor in Oahu, Hawaii, outside of Honolulu. What a remarkable point that is in the history of the United States. We took the opportunity to, of course, take that shuttle boat out to the Arizona Memorial there where the shadows of that ship still remain in the, in the sea. And the oil still continues to bubble up from those great diesel tanks. And if you've been there, you know that there's a great marble monument to all of the hundreds who are entombed below your feet there. One of the parts that touched me, my heart so much that morning was a display and picture that they had of a number of those who were there in Pearl Harbor and particularly those who were on the Arizona and survived. And now, as you well know, we're losing our World War II veterans at a, a high rate every day as uh, we're reaching that point where soon they will all be gone. It touched my heart deeply to acknowledge a display that was well done there, showing how these men now, as they die, their directive is for them to be cremated, put in an urn, and Navy divers are taking them down and entombing them in the Arizona next to their buddies. What a serious and emotional thing that is. As you stand on the Arizona Monument, you look across a little bit of water, and there is the great battleship, the USS Missouri. So we took the shuttle boat back to the shore and took the bus and were dropped off at the battleship Missouri. And some of you have been there. And there you go from having witnessed the Arizona Memorial, which for the United States in history notates our entry into World War II. As you move your way over to the USS Missouri, that great battleship, you are acknowledging there then that this is where it all ended. It wasn't there in Pearl Harbor. The Japanese bombed us in Pearl Harbor, as you well know, on December 7th, 1942. On September 2nd in 1945 with the USS Missouri in Tokyo Bay, there General Douglas MacArthur set up on the deck the treaty for the surrender of the Japanese Imperial Army. What's interesting about that is that they have a seal embedded in the mahogany deck right on the spot. And there, on that very spot, at a point in time, a moment in history, September 2nd, 1945, General Douglas MacArthur stood. And they have a picture display and you just stop and you try to take it in and and recognize how significant that moment in history was. You see, we know the end of the story and we sometimes forget how precarious times had been here in the United States. The blackout curtains, and the war gardens, and the gas rationing, the watching of the daily headlines, wondering how had Hitler advanced, where, was ja where were the Japanese in the South Pacific, where were our boys, how was it going? in this great global war. And there you stand on the deck and there at that seal was a table that they set up and General Douglas MacArthur made a speech. Part of what he said was, it is my earnest hope and indeed the hope of all mankind that from this solemn occasion a better world shall emerge out of the blood and carnage of the past. Some of the worst blood and carnage was in the South Pacific in our battle with the Japanese. A world founded upon faith and understanding, a world dedicated to the dignity of man and the fulfillment of his most cherished wish for freedom, tolerance, and justice. He went on then to describe the terms of surrender, and there those proud Japanese leaders and generals bent over and with their pens surrendered themselves to the United States. I think that you could argue that that was one of history's finest hours. What relief that brought. We had already had, we had victory in Europe. We had now victory in Japan. 
World War II was over. My father talks about the very first time that he drove into a gas station then when the word was on uh, spreading around the neighborhoods and the communities. The war is over. They've signed it and rationing has been lifted. And he pulled into a gas station and told the guy to fill up the tank and just see what it feels like. What a change. What a fine moment in American history. This morning... As I invite you to turn back to Matthew's account of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I want to suggest to you that as, as fine a moment as the surrender of Japan is in American history, that it is surpassed in all of world history by the greatest moment that we can ever know, and that is the recognition of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and its significance upon all the course of human history and even our lives today. I invite you to skip ahead of where we are in Matthew. If you're new to us today, we are working our way through the Gospel of Matthew. And this morning, I want to pick up the story following the crucifixion of our Lord, but I want us to pick it up with the story of His burial in Matthew chapter 27, beginning with verse 57. If your notes are nearby, you may... Uh, follow along with your notes and may find it helpful to fill in the blanks there as sort of a listening guide and see the progress of the unfolding of our story. I think that it's um, difficult to overstate the scene of the grief and the dismay and the futility of the day as these dear ones have watched our Lord Jesus Christ be crucified by these Roman soldiers. He's bloodied, he's beaten, he's battered. Once again, we know the end of the story, and, and so it, it softens the reality of the unknown that they would have experienced at that time. To watch the one that they understood to be the Messiah be beaten and roughed, and nailed to a cross, and then have that spear thrust into his side. To see the blood and the water pour out, and to hear him surrender himself up, and to watch him die. His mother standing there, his disciples gathered around. What an incredible moment. For us, some of us have experienced uh, watching a loved one die at a hospital bed, or in a hospital bed in our home. A few have experienced the death of friends or close love of a, of a dear ones on the battlefield. A few maybe have watched someone die in a terrible accident or a tragic fire. But most of us never experience watching someone we love be openly executed. Especially when we think that that one is the Messiah. We had such great hope. We thought we understood what was happening. And all of that is dashed. Let's read our part of our text here. I want to pick it up with the burial. And this is indeed, number one, a scene of grief and futility as we head towards the resurrection morning. And when it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea, verse 57 of Matthew 27, named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and he asked for the body of Jesus. And then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and he wrapped it in, clean, in a clean linen shroud and he laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and he went away. And Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting opposite the tomb. The next day, that is the, after the day of preparation, would be the Passover day, the Saturday, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and they said, Sir, we remember how that imposter, see they wouldn't even say his name, how that imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers, go and make it as secure as you can. And so they went and they made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. What an interesting scenario we have. Let's go to our notes and, and let's just pick up where we are, laying a foundation for how stunning the resurrection morning would be. 
In this scene of grief and futility, we need to recognize that all hope is shattered. All hope is shattered. This is a day of, of overwhelming confusion. You need to know that open displays of mourning was actually outlawed by the Roman government in the time of execution. So if someone is executed and you know them or you love them or you care about them and it grieves you, it was illegal to show open mourning. I don't know if uh, some of these gathered around the cross were actually just stoic. Were they trying to hold a straight face? I think at some level there had to be some open grief. It was so dramatic and so stunning. And it is interesting at this time that as we encounter the crucifixion is completed, our Lord has fulfilled at least part of the work of redemption in becoming the ultimate sacrificial lamb. The Father has turned His back upon Him. The sin of the world is upon Him. God has condemned God to death to pay the penalty for the sins of the world. And there's the body hanging limp on the tree, on that cross. And so I take it at this point in the story that the disciples have scattered. I'm talking of the 11 remaining disciples. Judas, of course, has betrayed him, <clears throat> hung himself. And the disciples have scattered. And it's interesting to me that here in this scene of utter despair, there surfaces actually two men who are disciples. But up to this point, while our Lord was alive and ministering, they were underground disciples. They were secret disciples. Notice what it says in verse 57. It says, And when it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph. We know from other passages that he, that he was also a Pharisee. And he was an, an officer there, a part of the religious leadership. We know that he was a righteous and a just man. And that he was a disciple of Christ. We're told in other accounts that he had to muster up courage to go to Pilate and ask for the body. He took somewhat of a risk. You need to know that often, not only was in an execution, was mourning outlawed. That is, it was part of the reality of the fact that this person is being punished for heinous sin. <clears throat> Excuse me. This person is being punished for heinous sin or heinous lawbreaking to the point that their life is being taken and so part of that was, we're not going to grieve this. This is part of Roman law and, and, and justice. Don't grieve this piece of trash. And not only that, then they wouldn't always allow the family to have the body. And they would take the body and sometimes throw it along the edge of the cemetery there in an open grave or near the town dump. And the body would literally be thrown out where vultures could get to it and decay could be seen. And it was part of the disgracing process and the humiliating of this criminal for all that they've done. Joseph of Arimathea knows this. He goes to Pilate. Pilate checks with his soldiers. Is he dead? They were surprised that he was dead already. He died on the cross there. You remember the Roman soldiers in speeding up because they were worried about the Jews keeping a Passover. And on Friday evening, the day of preparation, evening was falling. And in Deuteronomy, it commanded that it was unlawful to leave someone on the cross on Passover, uh, into the evening of any day. And then particularly Passover, they worried about that. The Roman soldiers were edgy about what was happening. And so what was their practice? To take a huge hammer and go up to those who were hanging on the cross because to stay alive on the cross and to, to breathe your, the weight hanging on your chest, we understand and are told that they had to push with their feet, which caused excruciating pain because of the nails in their feet or their lower extremities. And they had to push up to relieve their diaphragm so that they could let air into their lungs every time they needed to breathe. And so to, to hasten death, they would take a huge hammer, the Roman soldiers would, and after they had hung there what they thought was a sufficient amount of time, if they hadn't expired or died yet, they would take that hammer and go up and smash their shins or their knees and break their legs so that they could no longer push up, and then in short order, they would suffocate to death. And the Word tells us that they did that to the two criminals that were hung on each side of our Lord, but... In looking up at our Lord, they recognized that he was already dead. So they did something that they also always did. And they took their spears and they thrust it up through the rib cage into the heart 
the sack around the heart, making sure that there was absolutely no question that the individual is dead. And we have testimony that our Lord bled water and blood together, recognizing that the water had already gathered into the chest cavity and he is dead. So there they are. The disciples leave. They can no longer handle this. And then you have this Joseph of Arimathea that shows up and he musters up the courage to go ask for the body of our Lord. And I want you to take a minute and turn with me to John's account in John's gospel in chapter 19. And I want you to see that there's yet another underground disciple who surfaces at this time. And it's quite interesting. You'll recognize this man's name. He had an encounter with Jesus earlier in the gospel of John and His name is Nicodemus. Look in John chapter 19 and let's read verses 38 and 39. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, John chapter 19, verse 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, there it is, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus and Pilate gave him permission So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, remember, he was sneaking around because he was a Pharisee and afraid of being condemned, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and they bound it in linen cloths with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Interesting, isn't it? That that those who had followed him in life abandoned him in death. And those who were afraid to identify with him in life came out and surfaced and and decided that it didn't matter they would expose themselves as being disciples of this crucified Jesus. And somehow stirred in their hearts, maybe with a little bit of shame of not identifying with him earlier, took care of this body. And they tenderly took him, wrapped him, wrapped him in those spices, put him in Joseph's tomb. I want you to notice that it says in verse 57, we're back in Matthew, that this was a rich man. Joseph of Arimathea was a rich man. I want you to notice one other thing that's happening as we head towards the resurrection. Not only are we beginning with a hopeless scene at the crucifixion and at the cross and at the burial, we have these two secret disciples taking over the body. But I want you to note that in Isaiah 53, 9, we have a prophetic phrase. And if you want to, you can turn there. If not, just listen. In Isaiah 53, in this great chapter that is that is a prophetic statement about the work and ministry and redemptive program of our Lord Jesus Christ as He becomes the the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That in this dark hour, letter C under Roman numeral 1 in our outline, in this dark hour, prophecy is being fulfilled. I want you to notice a verse that somewhat obscure. Maybe you've never noticed this before. In Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 9, note what it says. It says, and they made his grave with the wicked. So he was crucified right next to a graveyard with wicked men. His body is taken down. And then it says, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Isaiah prophesied years before that the Lord Jesus would identify at the time of his death and his burial, with the wicked and with the rich. And there it is, crucified between two thieves, these wicked men who who deserved execution. And then taken down by Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man, and he is laid in the grave of a rich man, identifying and fulfilling in a very literal way that in his death he would identify with the wicked and with the wealthy. Isn't that interesting? Don't mess with the Bible. It's always true to a T. Well, there we are, a scene of grief and futility. I want you to note then that the guards are a little bit nervous about what's going to happen. And the next scene that we have as, as, the, as the story unfolds is a false sense of security among 
these who have executed him. Verse 62, we've already read it. That is the next day after the day of preparation. Uh, so this is Saturday now and Jesus is in the grave. The chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and they said, Sir, we remember how that imposter, they, they just despised him, said that he was while he was still alive, that after three days I will rise. It's almost as though they heard it more clearly than the disciples themselves. On at least three occasions we have recorded for us where our Lord very clearly prophesied his resurrection. And indeed he did. And therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell people he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. They didn't believe him at the beginning of his ministry. They still didn't believe he was the Messiah. He who could raise the dead, heal the lame, make the blind to see, the deaf to hear, break bread for multitudes. And Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go and make it as secure as you can. And so in thinking that they would make sure that there was no way that the body could exit the tomb, they did letter A, a stone. They went and they secured it by a stone and sealing the stone, a seal, letter B, and then a guard. They established a guard at the tomb, as you are well aware of the story. So there we are. We have the scene. The disciples have scattered. The women have been watching. And uh, they are very disheartened. It is a hopeless scenario. There's much grief. As much as they can, they're trying to hide the grief on their faces, lest the Roman soldiers accuse them of violating Roman law. Those who have opposed him and have crucified him have set up this, this guarding of the tomb and have this sense that all is taken care of. We notice then that these women, we notice in verse 61, by the way, that Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting opposite the tomb. Even as the men had left, uh, the Marys and probably a couple of the other women's, women from the uh, parallel accounts we know were sitting there watching as they handled the body. Let's remind ourselves who Mary Magdalene is. Mary Magdalene is um, mentioned in verse 28, uh, verse 1 of chapter 28. Let's read that. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And so this is now early at dawn as the sun is coming up on Sunday morning. Mary Magdalene had sat and watched as they carried the body to the tomb. And she was the first one to come. And um, it's no wonder because Jesus Christ had changed her life. Some of you know what this feels like. Some of you know what it is to remember your life and the disgraces of your world before you came to know Christ. And you know, you know the exact moment where it was where Christ changed your life. And everything that you look, that you look at in the mirror now looks different than it used to be. And Mary Magdalene was one of those kinds of people. We don't know a lot about her. Um, we just know that uh, in, in Luke's gospel and uh, chapter 8, verse 2, it says that of Mary Magdalene, seven demons had been cast out of her by her Lord. This was a woman who had lived a horrible life. It's about all we really know for sure. Some people think that she is the one who uh, broke the perfume on our Lord or uh, wept tears that, that she had been a prostitute and wiped his feet with her, her tears and her hair. We can't prove that. But her life had been dramatically transformed as she had had demons cast out. Seven demons, it says. And there she was. I take it that Mary, the mother of our Lord, is so stricken by grief that when John takes her away from the cross and takes her home, I picture that she had to just lie down and rest in her grief. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, these women, um, come to the tomb on the first day of the week and... I take it to be a need for finality. We know that, um, that they came to just see the grave again. The New American Standard translates what the ESV says on the first day of the week. They went to see the tomb. The New American Standard translates that line. They came to look at the tomb. They, they had no idea that the stone would be rolled away. In fact, in parallel passages, they have that conversation as they approach the tomb and they wonder who's going to roll away the tomb, the stone. And so they came to look at the grave, the NIS says. 
And there is no expectation of finding an empty grave. In Luke chapter 24, verse 1, it says that they were taking spices to prepare, that they had prepared. And they were hoping to add to the perfuming of the body, which tried to stifle some of the horrible smell of decay. It's partly why the stone was put in place as well, both to keep the smell in and to keep wild animals and birds out from getting to the body. Here they are in their grief, wanting to honor, wanting to show respect. And think about how you are when you go to a cemetery. Think about how real this is to them. And as they rise early, perhaps unable to sleep very well or rest very well, they have a plan to go and to add, which is their tradition, to the scenting of the body. And here they come, and now everything changes. And behold, it says, there was a great earthquake. Well, what must that be like? Some of you have experienced earthquakes. And behold, there was a great earthquake, earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said, come see the place where he lay. What a statement of authority we have from God. Now, Matthew is a reliable eyewitness. Matthew is right there. Matthew writes this account about 30 years following the occasion of this crucifixion and burial and resurrection. But Matthew was a disciple. Matthew was very much engaged in all of the happenings of what was going on. He records for us, as do others, that there was, first of all, a great earthquake that morning. I take it that that was the very instant... The Bible doesn't say this, but it was the very instant that our Lord rose out of those grave clothes and exited the tomb. Now, I personally believe that our Lord exited the tomb before the stone was rolled away. He did not need the stone to be rolled away. And as, this, the, as the earth rumbled, as salvation's plan was complete, he rises again, as we'll see in Romans in a few minutes, for our justification, the earthquakes. Now, notice there had been an earthquake at his death. Even to the point Matthew records this odd occurrence that we read Friday night and we closed out communion. That there was an earthquake and the earth shook. If you let your eyes go to chapter 27 and verse 52, it says there, And the tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints had fallen, who had fallen asleep or had died were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Many, most Bible students believe that idea was that it was immediately following our Lord's resurrection, that, that these rose again as a monument to the resurrection. Nobody really knows what that is. What happened to them? Some believe that, uh, that, that they ascended into heaven. They already had their glorified bodies. Other, others believe that their, their bodies were restored to life like Lazarus, and then they had to die again. But they were a testimony to the resurrection, a monument to the resurrection. What a bizarre reality. And I believe that all of that happened at the moment our Lord resurrected from the grave, and there was this earthquake that shook the ground. God is making a statement. He shakes the earth. We're going to notice as we go back a few chapters and, and we cover the teaching of our Lord in the final week of his, of his ministry before he goes to Golgotha and to Calvary, that he's going to talk about earthquakes in the end times. Whenever God is making a statement to the world, he, he often shakes it. And there's a, a literal earthquake. No man can make the earthquake. No man can stop the earth from quaking. And God makes the earth to tremble and shake. It's interesting, too, to note that earlier, before the crucifixion, as he was dying, that there was a huge earthquake. And then remember that point where it said, and there was darkness for three hours. And I take it to be an utter blackness. I don't know what these people are thinking. And then early on the first day of the week, as they are in their beds around the community, they feel the earth shake and the, the dishes in the cabinet rattle. God is making a statement. The second thing they see as they approach, not only as the ladies come, do they feel the earthquake. Um, there was a greater, the angel of the Lord descends from heaven as part of that earthquake in response. And he came and he rolled back the stone and sat upon it. I believe the tomb is already empty at this point. 
There's this angel of the Lord. Secondly, an angel of the Lord with the appearance of lightning, it says in verse 3. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. So we have the earthquake. We have this this blazing, lightning-like angel. What a bizarre scene. The parallel accounts say there are two angels. Matthew doesn't say there's only one, so he's not contradicting it, but he only comments on one and the one that evidently speaks. And there's this angel blazing before them. And this is all that the ladies see as they approach. And then they see that the stone has been broken away from its seal and rolled back. This stone is something that would have taken several powerful men to move. It would have been impossible for these ladies to move it. And so they move, the stone is rolled back. And I think that there's a symbolism here that the angel is sitting on the stone. It's like... Makes a good chair. It's not a very good door. The stone is rolled back. Notice in verse 4 then that the guards who were there, these soldiers, for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. So they were so shaken by this earthquake, by this blazing lightning-like angel, the stone begins to move. There they are early at the crack of dawn. You know how you kind of feel tired and sleepy and a little jumpy anyway. All of a sudden, this, the, the earth beneath their feet is trembling and rolling and, and, and it's just bizarre. And then, and, then, and then they realize that something far outside of their control is taking place here. And a supernatural statement is being made. And they, they shake and they quake. And then it says they evidently fainted because they came, became like dead men. And they were frozen with fear. What a pronouncement of victory the angel then makes. And he says, um, verse 5, But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He knew why they came. And he makes this statement, verse 6. Here's the victory statement. He is not here, for he is risen as he said. Reality is that because he said it, he had to rise again. All right? And he... He couldn't not keep his word. It would be impossible. And so he rises again and then he says to them, come and see the place where he lay. And then he gives them a mandate to go and tell. So he gives them this pronouncement of victory that Christ had over death, hell, and the grave. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee and there you will see him. See, I have told you. And so they departed quickly, it says. Notice the joy of their new reality, verses 8 and 9. Roman numeral 5 in your outline. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. I guess so. These conflicting emotions come together. Conflicting emotions of fear and then this great joy that they can barely contain themselves. Imagine how their minds must have been whirling. And so they departed quickly. Their emotions conflicted, and they ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. This is Matthew's account. And they came up and they took hold of his feet and they worshipped him. Can you imagine that moment? Absolutely incredible. And then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. That's how Matthew summed it up. I thought it would be good for us to turn to John chapter 20 and read John's account of how Mary Magdalene is the first one that Jesus tells and that sees. And so she's one of the last to see his body put in the tomb. And then here in this place, in a sense of honor, is this dear lady. Our Lord had transformed her life. In John chapter 20, beginning with verse 16. Let's pick it up with verse 11 and just quickly read the account here. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look, to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting there where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They have taken away my Lord. I do not know where they have laid him. See, she thinks he's still dead. No expectation whatsoever of a resurrection. Having said this, she turned around and she saw Jesus with her eyes standing there. But she did not know 
that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? So if she sees him, okay, so her senses are taking it in. Now she hears him speak. Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me, where have you laid him? And I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she said to him and turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. What a moment. There it is right there. There it is. This is my Lord. He is alive. He's not in the grave. I imagine that her mind is just whirling. Verse 17, John says, Jesus said to her, do not cling to me. So she was now touching him. As Matthew said, she grabbed his feet and ankles evidently. For I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father and your Father, to my God and to your God. And Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Well, they didn't believe her, of course. We'll leave that for another day. Interesting, isn't it? What a phenomenal moment. She became completely convinced in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The first eyewitness, the first one to hear his voice, the first one to touch his resurrected body, Mary Magdalene, this one whose life he had transformed and changed so, changed so dramatically. Let's wrap up the end, how the guard responds, verse 11 through 15. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers. And they said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we slept. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money. So they paid bribe money so that they would lie. And they did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. To this day was Matthew's account 30 years after it happened. So 30 years later, they still said, were saying that lie, that fable had been spread. It occurred to me that this is uh, one of the first accounts of fake news that we have here. You see, they knew the facts, didn't they? In verse 11, look what it says. They went into the city and the guards told them everything that happened. What did they tell them? They told them that the earth quaked. And they told them that the stone moved of its own accord away from the door of the tomb. And that as they were taking it in, that these two men in lightning-like garments came down. They saw it. It's what dropped them like dead men. They saw it. They knew what they saw. They knew that no disciples had come to steal the body. They took the bribe money, and they made up, even though they know the, knew the facts, they created a fable. Well, there's Matthew's account. I've used this illustration before. It'll be a little bit familiar to you. I want to tell you a little bit more that happened on the deck of the USS Missouri. The guide was telling us what was happening, and they have some big prints of black and white and color prints of the actual photos of the event. And then they have the seal where Douglas MacArthur and the Japanese and all of the contingencies of, of leadership and generals from around the world signed documents. And the guide is telling us about this, and I raised my hand and I said, How do you know? How do you know it's true? Well, you say, well, we have pictures. Actually, you can click online and you can have a video of Douglas MacArthur making a speech. We believe it because those who were eyewitnesses recorded it for us. Now, obviously, there wasn't video. And you could argue that there is a, 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 a more significant forensic evidence in video than there is actually in written account. But for the day and for the eyewitnesses, we have excellent, historical, reliable record of exactly what happened. When you study the accounts, there is no good reason to disbelieve that this happened. I didn't say that to the guide. But that's what people do to the Bible all the time. Here's the eyewitnesses. Here's the account. And we say, how do you know? I wasn't there. I didn't see it. I don't know if it's true. 
the eyewitnesses saw it, and they carefully recorded for us exactly what happened. And I would like to suggest to you that um, history's greatest hour was not on the deck of the USS Missouri, but it was right outside of Jerusalem one early one morning when the earth quaked and angels like lightning came and bore testimony to guide them into the empty tomb and our Lord rose from the dead, conquering death, hell, and the grave. History's finest hour. You say, why? Why? Uh, let me just give you three reasons from Paul's book of Romans. This will be very brief. So we've encountered the story. We've examined the historical evidence based upon an eyewitness account. Now one who was not present, but who had a face-to-face -face encounter with our Lord in more of a, of a vision-like setting. The Apostle Paul, who had been Saul of Tarsus, who was a murderer of Christians, who hated Christ. He was a Pharisee. His life was transformed with a face-to-face -face spiritual encounter with Christ post-resurrection, post-ascension. More than any other writer in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul references back to the importance of the resurrection as foundational to our life and our faith and our doctrine. Let me give you just three reasons why history's finest hour is the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what is so significant about this moment? Number one has to do with authentication. Authentication. The very veracity of our Lord's ministry is documented in His resurrection. Authentication. Look what Paul says in Romans chapter 1. He's beginning to write this text. He's writing to a group of believers in the city of Rome. And he says, Paul, he's identifying himself, who is a servant of Christ Jesus. So I personally, who used to persecute people who followed Christ, have been converted, and I am a follower of Christ, and I am a follower of Jesus Christ, called by Jesus Christ, to be an apostle, that is, one who bears the good news of Jesus Christ. And I have been set apart for the gospel of God. The very, the very message of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Paul says, is why my life has been set apart. And he promised this beforehand through the prophets. What did he promise? He promised uh, that concerning his son, through the Holy Scriptures who had descended from David according to the flesh, okay, so he was of the lineage of David in his heritage, prophesied by the prophets of old that he would come, this Messiah, and then it says, who is descended from David according to the flesh, and then he was, verse 4, declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by what? By his resurrection from the dead. The Apostle Paul says, all of this is authenticated by the reality that he said he would do it, he did it, and we've documented that he did it. He's been transforming my life ever since. And I, in fact, a messenger of this gospel. Number one, the very authentication of the life and ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ is contingent, the resurrection. We have many prophets who have lived, many prophets who have written, many prophets who are lying dead in a tomb. We only have one who was, the, who was God in the flesh, who authenticated his message, message through the resurrection. Secondly, not only is the very life and ministry and message of our Lord Jesus authenticated through the resurrection, but secondly, I want to show you that because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our justification is made possible. First of all, the authentication of the message and messenger. Secondly, our justification, our standing before a holy God. Now that's a big, fat, hairy word, and I'm not going to take a long time to unfold it, but will you read in Romans chapter 4 and verse 22? Romans chapter 4, beginning with verse 22 through 5.1. Romans chapter 4, verse 22 through 5.1. Look what it says. That is, that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. He's, we're jumping into the middle of a passage and he's using Abraham as an illustration of somebody who was saved by their faith in God. 
And Paul, writing to the Roman believers, is using Abraham as an illustration, and that's who he means by why his faith. That's Abraham's faith was, quote, counted to him as righteousness because he was fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. And that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. This is a testimony to our salvation as well. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead. We believe in him who was raised from the dead, our Uh, From the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses, so he died for our sin, and he was raised for our justification. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What does that mean? Let me use another illustration that I have used before here. And if you're new, it'll be new to you. If you're not, you've heard it about three times. Here's how it works. Everybody who ever lives has sinned. And it's though there's a sin file in heaven. It's like a big file cabinet in heaven. And everybody who's ever sinned, with every sin they've ever sinned, is kept on record in the file cabinet of heaven. And so God can check on people. And you look over there and say, check on that McDwyer. Check on that McDwyer. See if he's in the sin file. And they pull the sin file out. And sure enough, he's in the sin file. And whoa, do we have some sins being racked up. And it's horrible. And there they are. There's Mike Eshbaugh for sure. Absolutely. In the sin file. This is a problem. Because you're in the sin file and there's absolutely no way you can get out of the sin file. You can't get out of the sin file. All you do is just keep cha-ching, 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 racking up sin in the sin file. That's it. Until one day... God loved the world so much that He gave His only begotten Son to go to the cross to die for us to do what we've just talked about, the historical record shows. And Paul says that the moment He was resurrected, He was resurrected for our justification. What does that word mean? It means that we were in the sin file and we have a record of bankruptcy. It's a banker, it's a legal and banking term, this idea of justification. Okay, the idea is that I'm in the sin file, I'm stuck in the sin file, and there's nothing I can do to get out of the sin file. In other words, I'm absolutely bankrupt, and I'm on record as being bankrupt, and that's my sin. The wages of my sin is death. But then Paul said, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. When when Jesus died on the cross, he paid the penalty in full for all the sins of the world, for everybody who ever lived past, and everybody who ever lived In the future, that would be us. And some of us have racked up some incredible sin. You don't even want to let your mind go back to your sophomore year when you were 19 in college and all the stupid sin you did. It's it's unspeakable. In fact, a lot of it you can't even remember. It's blanked out. Good. There's nothing you can do to get to heaven. But when Jesus died on the cross, then we have access to God through Christ by going to the cross, admitting our sinfulness, and accepting His free gift of forgiveness. And that's what Paul is teaching in Romans 4 and 5. That there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because He rose again for our justification. So when we acknowledge our sinfulness before a holy God, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Then... We are taken out of the sin file and our name, our sin is forgiven and this is gone. It's blanked out as far as the east is from the west into the deepest part of the deepest sea. And our name is now in the Jesus file. And when we have been justified, okay, it means that our name is removed from the sin file, put in the Jesus file. And not only that, this file is totally blanked out. It is no longer available. It is gone It is covered by the blood of Christ and it is obliterated. There is no record anywhere that you were ever a sinner. And so when God looks down and he says, Hey, Gabriel, check on that McDwyer. Which file is he in? And he goes over and he says, Can't find him in the sin file, man. He's in the Jesus file. How did he get in the Jesus file? Well, one day he was walking down the road. And he became overwhelmed with his own sinfulness. And he realized that he better do something about that. And he looked to the cross. 
And he realized that Jesus shed his blood for him and was, forgave him of everything. And by putting his faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone, his sin was blotted out. That's what Jesus did. That's what we just read the historical account. And he was raised for our justification so that the record of our sin could be removed. And we are now in the Jesus file. And that's it. Now, the problem that we have is that our brains are often stuck in the sin file. But in heaven, God's record is completely only kept in the Jesus file. He has no record of this. When you've been justified, it is as though you have never sinned ever before. Because the righteousness of Jesus Christ covers you. That's why this event is history's finest hour. Because it's the only way we can take care of our sinfulness. Thirdly, it's because of our salvation then that we enter into this justification. It was for authentication. It was for justification. And it was for salvation. And that's Romans 10, 9 and 10. The Apostle Paul said, if you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's it. That's your key to your salvation. So we have looked in detail at a historical account of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And reality is, I'll tell you where history's finest hour in your life is. You go find the spot where you were. Maybe next to your mama's bed. Maybe in the front seat of your car. Maybe in some little church somewhere when you were a kid with your grandma. Maybe down at an altar somewhere and you put a brass seal like they have in the deck of the USS Missouri because history's finest hour is when you kneel before the cross and you acknowledge your sinfulness and you recognize that the message is true. It's been authenticated by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And you recognize that justification is made possible by this great resurrection. And you recognize that you enter into this salvation by believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead. That's it. Literally, bodily raised him from the dead. And put your seal there. I ask you a question. Do you have a place where you can mark history's finest hour in your life? Do you have a place? If not, this is a good place and a good time. Will you stand with me and bow your head, please? Before I pray, and I'll be down front, you come and see me if you want to talk more about this. Pray with me. Let me know if you pray this prayer. But right now, this morning, on Easter Sunday morning, you can put a brass seal in the floor and mark history's finest hour for you where you recognize that the, that the messenger, Jesus, is the Messiah, that his message is true, authenticated by the, by the resurrection, that this, this momentous, phenomenal spiritual reality of justification is true because of his resurrection. And there is now no condemnation for those who have their salvation in him and believe in their heart that he is the Lord and that he died for our sin and that God raised him from the dead. You'll be saved from your sin. Right now, in the privacy of your own heart and mind, you can tell God, God, I believe it to be true. And I become a follower of Jesus Christ. And I would challenge you not to be a secret follower like Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus were for so long but to openly proclaim Christ and not be ashamed of the gospel of Christ. And so, Lord, for those of us in need of salvation, we cry out to you and we say we are sorry for our sin and we recognize that Jesus is the Christ and that the message is true and that Jesus is the Messiah and that justification is a reality that we enter into through the, through the believing of our salvation in Christ, putting our faith and trust in Christ alone. Father, would you stir hearts and open minds, I pray, this Easter morning. We thank you for this grand story. Help us to believe it. Help us to live it. In Jesus' precious name I pray, Lord.